Welcome to the Untold Civil War. This show is brought to you by our patrons on Patreon and our sponsor, The Badge Maker. More on him later. If you too would like to support the show and get your questions asked during these interviews, just click on the Patreon link in the show notes. We are getting roughly 1,500 downloads a week, so I want to thank all of you who have been spreading the word by word of mouth or social media. If you haven't already, go check out the YouTube channel. We've got a ton of video content lined up for you, and on there right now you'll find content on whaling in the Civil War, a list of the top fictional vets of the Civil War, unboxing videos, and much more. And now, without further ado, report to the armory, weekend warrior. It's drill weekend, and we've got some untold Civil War on the training schedule. This is the Untold Civil War podcast, and today we have Sergeant First Class Aaron Heft with us. He's a 15-year veteran of the Army National Guard, spends most of his time as an infantryman, which is great stuff. He is now assigned to the National Guard Bureau headquarters as part of the Leader Development Program. Graduated Gettysburg College in 2011 with a degree in history and political science currently pursuing a master's in military history. His research focuses on National Guard history. He's currently using this focus as a training tool through leader development, using our past experiences to teach battlefield lessons to today's leaders. Thank you for coming on the show. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's an honor and I enjoy the podcast greatly. Oh, I appreciate it. I really appreciate it. So, I mean, this is really your bread and butter. So I want to ask this question because it can be very confusing when people are trying to study the Civil War, and they hear things like volunteers, regulars, militias, there's all sorts of stuff going on, and and people can get lost. And then to just add more to the confusion, when they try to understand the military today, or at least the army, you know, we've got uh, active duty, we've got National Guard, we've got Army Reserve, we've got now State Guard units, you know, that are specific to the state, it can get very confusing. So what is the Army National Guard today? How does that connect us to some of these units from the Civil War? Sure. So I think the best way to start is to kind of to look at the modern lens first, and then we'll go we'll go back from there. So the the Army National Guard today is the one of the major reserve components in the United States military. So they are state uh, organizations. They're the descendants of the Minutemen and the state militia, and they basically serve in a state capacity domestically at the service of the governor. So they're called up for national emergencies, domestic disturbances floods, hurricanes, things like that. But the Guard can also be federalized as part of the strategic reserve for the active component. So in that case, you know, you'll see Guard units federalized, called to active duty, and they'll be deployed to places like Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria. So that's really how the Guard functions today. And if you look back to the Civil War, we're really descended uh, from the volunteer units. So during the Civil War, when the army was was getting called up, these state militia units existed. They were small organizations. A lot of them in small towns weren't numbered very very high in in their uh, their organization. So when they called up these volunteer units and they called for volunteers, a lot of these state militias would band together to form larger organizations. And those organizations are what the guard today traces its its history and its past through. So what about when people read about regulars? That would be active duty component today, right? 
Yeah, yeah, very much so. So a lot of the terminology you see during the Civil War is, is as you mentioned, it gets kind of confusing. You got like 30 different names for, for different types of troops. But so the U.S. regulars, uh, Sykes regulars and, and first and second U.S. infantry, those type of units, those are going to be the predecessors of today's uh, active duty army, you know, the predecessors of the first infantry division or second infantry division. And then you will also see volunteer or state militia units. Um, and a lot of times state militia units will have a volunteer number in addition to their state number. So it can be kind of right. confusing, but those state militia and volunteer units are who the guard is generally descending from. Right, right. Now, the National Guard, though, because of its lineage is actually older than our active component, right? Absolutely. We like to remind them of that often. Yeah, uh, yeah we go back to the, uh, the Plymouth Colony in the 1600s, the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Uh, arguably has the oldest uh, organizations in the state dating or in the country dating back to the 1600s. And then, you know, as you advance uh, in time, you know, most of the East Coast states are founding militia units in the in the English style or the Spanish style uh, in the 1700s. So you get a very long lineage that, that actually predates the nation itself. So we have these militia units, you know, predecessors to our National Guard. Uh, they're formed and in existence prior to the Civil War. What sort of people were serving in these outfits uh, before the Civil War kicked off? So you get a lot of variety in it. So most states have a, a militia law or some sort of regulation that requires people to participate in a organized and armed militia. Um, but that that kind of system has fallen into it's not in the best condition by the time the Civil War rolls around. People are participating, but they're not participating as often as they used to. But you see kind of a widespread. So, for example, in 1861, when the Capitol is threatened by the, the rise of the Confederacy and Lincoln calls for, for volunteers, the very initial call, there's actually a group of militiamen from across Pennsylvania who quickly board trains and rush down to D.C. To, to guard the Capitol, and they're known as the first defenders. Now, th that unit, you know, that was local militia from Allentown, Pottstown, uh, the Reading area. So they were, they were mixed, just, you know, farmers, city dwellers, people of various backgrounds. Um, even an African-American, uh, free African-American named Nicholas Biddle was, was part of that organization. And when they rushed to DC, you know, they are there as a state militia. Um, they later form a volunteer unit and they're actually perpetuated in the National Guard today by a, an area support group out of Allentown. But, you know, that, that kind of gives you an idea. It's a, it's a mix across the board of folks. And a lot of these organizations, they were long-term traditional organizations. So in cities like Philadelphia, Philadelphia and New York, um, or down in the South in Richmond and Savannah, you'd see very wealthy individuals involved as, as kind of like a social standing, you know, they were a member of the seventh New York, or they were a member of one of the more traditional like Georgia, I'm trying to think, there's a Savannah artillery unit that's Chatham, Chatham Light Artillery is, is a great example of a long lineage of kind of the the higher echelons of that society um so that's kind of who makes up the guard it's everybody from the the elites and the wealthy down to the regular farmers and the uh city dwellers and, and factory workers so it could be anyone i think that really shows that in the united states especially during this time there's this sort of everyone has to serve or everyone serves or volunteers to serve. Not that like you're forced to serve, but there's this, everyone does some sort of service in the sense of the Minuteman, you know, everyone's a part of the militia. So you have people who are like, 
Vanderbilts who they don't really need it for the money, but they do need that check mark that, hey, I, I did some sort of service. At least I did in the seventh, you know, um, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. So that that tradition, it really carries on even it's it really kind of falls off in the post World War One era after the massive losses suffered by some of these these more wealthy and elite families. Um, so it kind of falls off after that time period. Okay, but right. you know, back during the Civil War, it's it's pretty egalitarian. Like you're seeing everybody across the spectrum. I mean, even one of uh, one of Lincoln's sons is in uniform during the war. So it is it is very much so a uh, everybody pitch in type of attitude. Did these units have like unique uniforms? I know that in New York there were units that wore gray when they were part of the union or the 79th new york i know they were wearing kilts not necessarily in battle but in the early days they were still wearing kilts were there other units that had specific uh, outfits or uniforms i should say yeah absolutely um i mean that was kind of one of the precursor elements of these these state militias like a lot of the pre-war militia units how they drew members and how they attracted volunteers to to to, to form these organizations was through their elaborate outfits. Um, the Zouave craze that was so popular during the Civil War, you see a lot of those units perpetuated in modern day National Guard units. So um, one, of the, one of the more famous units that everybody knows about from New York, for example, the 14th Brooklyn, they were actually, when they were numbered as a, a federal unit, they were the 84th New York. And they are perpetuated by a unit in the uh, National Guard today, a field artillery organization. So they had a very uh, elaborate, you know, red trimmed uniform, uh, Zubov style, Chasseur style, kind of mixing those French patterns. Hitting close to home for me, the Philadelphia Brigade, which is really a great example of, of kind of how a city uh, draws from all of its population. The brigade out of Philadelphia, you know, includes the 69th, 71st, 72nd, and 106th Pennsylvania, each of them outfitted in a slightly different and slightly distinct uniform, uh, at least in the initial stages of the war. Um, you know, as you mentioned, the uh, the 71st is, is outfitted in a uh, gray wool uniform, which is consistent with the pre-war Pennsylvania militia regulations. The 72nd and 69th adopt a uh, French Zouave style uniform with red trim for the 72nd and some elements of the 69th with green uh, trim. And then the 106 gets a straight up standard federal issue uniform. So, you know, that's it from the initial phases. By the end of the war, they're blended and they all pretty much look like every other federal soldier. But uh, early on, especially, you see that being very common uh, just because it was such a recruiting tool for the for the pre-war militia units. And of course, I know you do a lot on the Gettysburg battlefield. Can you talk about some of the units from the Army National Guard or have lineage through the militias that served at the Battle of Gettysburg? Yeah, we so we actually did a really cool project this summer um, when COVID kind of had everybody locked down at home. Uh, we got permission to go out onto the battlefield at Gettysburg and we recorded these little digital shorts and they kind of covered different portions of the battle where, where National Guard units played, you know, very key roles. Um, so some of the ones you, you think about, like if you look at day one of the battle, two of the units that are up on Oak Ridge or uh, Oak Hill rather, are, um, are National Guard descended units today. So there's a uh, 13th Massachusetts, which is now a quartermaster company today. You know, they're critical at holding that, that extreme flank uh, on Oak Hill um, and backed up by the 90th Pennsylvania, who, who is again, another National Guard formation perpetuated today. So those units are kind of critical on the first day at, at, at uh, kind of holding on to where the 
first core is really getting hammered and, and, and occupying that key terrain um, after the elements of uh, Ricketts and uh, some of the Georgian units show up and they're kind of maneuvering around trying to flank first core. Before that kind of falls apart up there and the 11th Corps moves back through the town, these, these two National Guard units are really like the right of the line holding everything down up there. If you shift over and move over towards uh, McPherson's Ridge, Everybody knows the 143rd Pennsylvania Monument, Benjamin Crippen. You know, he's out front shaking his fist with the colors. Um, he receives a Medal of Honor for that action. So while they're, uh, you know, turning and, and kind of providing another kind of flanking fire over on McPherson's Ridge, uh, the 143rd is, is a pretty critical unit. And they're recruited from Western Pennsylvania. Today, they're the 109th Field Artillery, the Pennsylvania National Guard. So, I mean, if you look at day by day, um, the Iron Brigade, everybody knows their actions on the first day. You know, they're perpetuated through the Wisconsin National Guard. So there's a lot of connections really each day of the battle. Well, let's go through it. So you talked about the 143rd on day one. Uh, what about day two? So I think probably my favorite day two National Guard story is going to be the first Minnesota, right? So everybody knows the story of the first Minnesota. And if you don't, um, you really have to dig into it because I'll just gloss over the wave tops here. But it is one of the most incredible stories of the entire Battle of Gettysburg. So on day two, while Sickles Corps is, is pulling back from the Peach Orchard, they're devastated, they're demoralized, they've got you know Confederate forces right on their tail. And you know, among their ranks are many other National Guard formations, but they're pulling back and they're trying to make their way back to Cemetery Bridge. And while that happens, the first Minnesota is ordered to move forward from their position behind the stone wall and essentially charge into the advancing Confederate forces. And in, in so doing, they take astronomical casualties and many of their men and leadership are shot down and they're already a withered regiment. They've lost uh, several companies to picket duty and they've had several, uh, you know, many, many of their companies are very low in number due to their battlefield losses prior to this. Now that first Minnesota, which makes such a gallant stand on the second day, they're going to face Confederate forces again on the third day as part of Pickett's charge. But wow. that unit, you know, with its long and proud history during the Civil War is going to be perpetuated today by the one 35th Infantry. Now they're out of the um, 34th Division, which is a, a very famous World War II division. The 34th is the, the Red Bulls. You know, they fight up through Italy, through, uh, you know, the Po River uh, region. They fight through the Winter Line, um, work way up into France and into Germany. So they, they are not just a, a battle-scarred and battle-hardened unit during the Civil War. Today, uh, they're a unit that has deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan multiple times, and they're they're still carrying on that legacy of the bravery and sacrifice of the first Minnesota. Fantastic. And I know you mentioned that the first Minnesota was also there on day three, but do you have any other units that were there on day three as well? So there's, there's two, uh, two, I think that, that play a great role in Pickett's charge. As I mentioned earlier, the Philadelphia brigade and being, you know, from, from the modern day descendants of the Philadelphia brigade, you know, I served, uh, for a long time with the 111th Infantry out of Philadelphia. And you know that organization is, they're at the Cops of Trees, they're right there 
the high water mark at the center of the stone wall. Um, they are the most forward unit really at, at Pickett's Charge, and they're kind of where the enemy's directed when they're when uh, Pickett's forces and the Confederate forces are moving across the field. They're going to head right for that that portion of the stone wall. And out front is the 69th Pennsylvania, the Irish uh, volunteer unit from the Philadelphia Brigade, and right behind the berm, uh, kind of protecting itself from the artillery fire, is the 72nd. And when you know the real crux of of, of the the event is happening and the 69th is in brutal bloody hand-to-hand -hand combat with confederate forces um, the 72nd is called forward they initially refuse and they initially don't want to enter the fight um, and they're eventually convinced to push forward and help clear uh, the the remaining confederate forces back from the stone wall so right there at the center probably one of the most historic and well-known moments of of the battle of gettysburg you know that unit is perpetuated today as the pennsylvania's 56th Stratton brigade the 111th infantry um, and several other elements within that brigade so it's it's really a great story from day three and just a little bit to the flank is is the 80th new york infantry um, and they're kind of on the line as well. And they're one of those units that kind of takes advantage of the tactical situation and pushes forward to the stone wall and provides some flanking fire into the, the attacking Confederate forces. And that unit's perpetuated today by a New York MP battalion, the 104th. So it's kind of neat to see if you look at the map of the battle and you kind of pick different areas and you look at you know, these different key events, you can really draw that story back into you know, these units that are still carrying those flags with those battle honors today right that's fantastic you know and i i really do think that what you do with you know teaching this it's really important in inspiring uh national guardsmen today and and what they do you know having that lineage really does inspire that esprit de corps if you will but of course there's one thing i want to ask so these units serve in the civil war what happens to them after the war what i find interesting is that you know you seem to have units that are designated infantry that are now today field artillery or military police. So what happens afterwards? So that's that's a great question. And it is one of the most complicated things to trace uh, when it comes to National Guard units. So unlike an active duty organization, which is gonna trace its lineage through the numbered organization. So, um, you know, an active duty unit, maybe the sixth infantry or the third infantry, for example, the third infantry of today is the third infantry of, of many years ago. Now in the guard, our organizations are traced regionally for the most part. So, you know, there are some exceptions, but a town's company will have been that town's company for, for a very long time. So uh, if you look at some of the examples in Massachusetts, right, you know, you have these military police battalions, you had these transportation battalions, those weren't things back in the 1600s, right? right there was right. there was militia, and militia was a foot soldier armed with a matchlock. Yeah. And during the revolution, you know, you really broke down into maybe three to four types of units. So the wide variety of air defense artillery and armored units and striker brigades that we have today, they didn't exist back then. So you have to look at the amalgamation of units, you have to look at the transfer and reflagging of units over time to really follow them, but you follow it by the community uh, for the most part. And there are some exceptions, as I said, but for the most part, you follow it by the community. One of my, my favorite ones to reference back to earlier um, is the, the first defenders from Allentown who up through the Civil War are uh, an infantry unit. And then they push on into the post-war era, and they're actually going to be converted in World War I to become a machine gun battalion, which is a brand new type of unit uh, for that conflict. 
Now, after that, the machine gun battalion kind of goes away as a formation in the army. And so they're restructured as an air defense or yeah, an air, uh, anti-aircraft unit, right? So right. they're going to, you know, spend World War II shooting at Messerschmitts in the sky right. over Africa and Italy. And then as you move into the modern area, uh, they go into an air defense artillery, you know, planning to fire missiles during the Cold War. And today they're an area support group providing an incredible array of different support elements, finance, um, transportation, logistics. So that is a unit that you can really trace all the many types of, of formations we've had in the guard, uh, you know, from the, the 17, 1800s to today. You know, this actually makes me think my unit, the 69th New York, which from what I understand, you know, started out as the militia started out as actually like a heavy artillery serving as infantry during the Civil War. And then later on after the war, they were strictly infantry, but there was a point in time where they were converted to air defense which I thought back to it, a lot of, a lot of people, there's a lot of pushback. But if you think back to it, I mean, being that they were originally heavy artillery, I was like, that's not a big difference right there. But of course, they've changed back to uh, infantry, conventional infantry. So yeah, you do see these, I guess, with the times and with the needs of the, the military, the needs of the, the army, they've changed and adapted to uh, accomplish different types of roles and missions. Now, General Grant preferred a private's coat, which he begrudgingly put shoulder boards on. He was not one for pomp and ceremony, but it is said that he once gave the off-the-cuff remark, If I were to sport a core badge, it would be one made by the badge maker. Or so the story goes. Check out our sponsor, The Badge Maker. Link in the show notes. So my next question is, we talked about National Guard units that have lineage to uh, outfits that fought on the Union side. Are there also units of the Army National Guard that have ties to Confederate outfits or units? So, yes, there are. And, and that's a topic that there's been a, a bit of debate on, uh, especially recently. And there's a lot of like valid opinions as to why or why not um, the unit should maintain that lineage and, and it should be you know, projected with current units. So, you know, if you look at it from a historical perspective, just like with the Northern units, um, when the call goes out to volunteers, a lot of these militia, these state or local militias, um, they get together and form volunteer units. So in a lot of the southern states, those volunteer units are going to end up in the service of the Confederate Army. In a lot of the border states, you're going to see a mix where some militias and some volunteer units go to the Union and some go to the Confederacy. So, you know, that's, that's kind of how these militia units shake out historically during the war. Now, where it really comes into play is in the post-war era is how these militia organizations pop back up after the war is over. So in the South, you'll see some of them, some of these units have a long history that dates back before the Civil War. So units like the Mississippi Rifles, they may be reformed uh, in the same area, in the same town with some of the same members uh, that were there before the war. Other units, you know, they're not allowed to reform because they had opposed the Union. Uh, some are going to be required to swear oaths of loyalty or they're going to be required to wait several years before they're allowed to reform. So, you know, there's all these kind of different ways that it's dealt with post-war. So some of those units do uh, perpetuate today uh, in the National Guard in the same regions that they served both during and before the Civil War, um, but others uh, cease to exist entirely after the war. So is there any truth to this? I know, I believe it's in the movie Fighting 69th in World War I, where the two outfits, the 69th finds out that they're being 
brigaded with or, or matched up with a unit that traces lineage to the Confederacy and they get into a fist fight over that. Did anything like this ever happen? Is this real, you know? Yeah, so you are you are drawing on probably one of my favorite topics um, in, in World War I history. So in World War I, when we federalize the military, we take state organizations, and unlike previous times, uh, previous conflicts like the Spanish-American War, where we let them serve under their name, you know, the Fifth, uh, Fifth New York or Second Pennsylvania. When we get to World War I, when we restructure the divisions to build them for service in the AEF, uh, these units are stripped of their state titles, and they're given the title of a federal, basically a federal number that, that uh, fits into a larger scheme of numbering divisions and regiments. Now, there's some small examples, like one uh, National Guard unit from New York, the 15th New York, which later becomes the 369th Infantry. They, for the most part, an all-African-American unit, retain their, their 15th New York moniker and their colors that say 15th New York on them for the entire conflict. So even though they are a officially renumbered 369, they mostly refer to themselves as the 15th New York. Right. Uh, but elsewhere, one great example is what you're talking about. The 42nd Division, or the Rainbow Division, as it was nicknamed, when it was formed, it was drawn from National Guard units from all over the country. So these units uh, you know, came together, and they formed one division that really represented the whole National Guard. And that division had elements from Alabama, Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, New York, Kentucky. So there was bound to be some inter-service rivalry there. And, and it's really neat when you read memoirs of the 42nd Division, they will talk about the other units, not by their number, but by their state. You know, oh, I'm going over to visit the Ohio boys. Or one of those guys from New York City, they just came over here. So it's really neat because they keep that kind of that state heritage and the state lineage. Now, the story you mentioned to, to actually get to your point of your question uh, was, yes, very much so. The 167th Infantry, which used to be the 4th Alabama, they join uh, as part of the 42nd Division, and they're brigaded with the 69th New York. So there have been uh, a lot of issues uh, between them. In, in the early stages when they're training in New York. And uh, you definitely see some, some uh, back and forth between them over their, their unit history and lineage. But I think you could probably also just uh, attribute it to a bunch of uh, regional differences between the two. Right, right. I, I still remember um, being at Fort Benning, Georgia for training. And, you know, I'd tell people I was part of the New York National Guard and they'd be like, oh yeah, didn't we whoop you at Fredericksburg or something? And I'm like, is this still a thing right now? I don't, all right, you know, but uh, it's funny. It's funny. So we kind of mentioned this a little earlier on. Can you talk on the importance of this, on the importance of drawing on this lineage, on the importance of discussing this history and building that sort of esprit de corps and that sense of tradition within the National Guard? Yeah, I, I think it's one of my, it's obviously one of my, my, my pet projects and favorite things, you know, even when I was coming up as like a young team leader, forcing my, my Joes while they were doing gun drills or whatever to learn, you know, historical events, when the unit was founded, how old the division is, you know, that was always the type of stuff I quiz guys on. And, and as I got older, I saw how it was really a part of the identity of who we are as a guard. You know, there's a lot of units out there that their unit crest features their Civil War Corps badge or a, a nickname that they earned during a campaign. They, you know, I know more about Pennsylvania than other states. I can think of a field artillery battery that their, their motto on their crest is Gettysburg to the Marne. 
Um, there's another infantry battalion that has their fifth corps badge widely uh, displayed on the center of their crest. So there's a lot of neat connections to our heraldry like that, where you'll see symbols from the Civil War that we still wear today. So you're kind of you know, stepping into the shoes of the guys that came before you. The battle streamers and battle honors are always, you know, a, a thing to be proud of, you know, how many campaigns and battles you served in as an organization. But then I think the bigger part of it is too, it's it's a regional identity. It's a thing to be proud of. Sometimes folks in the National Guard, they get a little down on themselves because, you know, they're not active duty. They're not the famous 101st Airborne. They don't have the name recognition of some of the other units. But if you really look at it, like we have been around for hundreds of years, you know, defending this country at home and abroad. And I think, you know, we can use it as an educational tool. You know, some of the things that we have learned in the past, you know, these, these battlefield lessons from Gettysburg and Antietam, they're the same lessons that we can still apply today, even if we are no longer an infantry unit, we're now a mechanized artillery or, right. or uh, an air defense unit. You know, we can still take some of those base lessons that are present in our doctrine um, and use them today. And we can take pride from who we were and where we came from. Absolutely, absolutely. And and you can argue that be, having both that civilian training and both the uh, military training, that can also be a real effective power when you're overseas and the type of different missions we're doing overseas. So uh, it's, it's really neat to have that. And speaking of just that, that regional connection, you know, being in the 69th, I remember I had to go to court one day. And while I was at court, I bumped into two court officers that were 69th an ADA and an ADA investigator. And I thought, you know, this is the type of thing that when you talk about that regional connection, that everyone sort of knows each other, it's sort of a small club. It's definitely something to be proud of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's the same reason why these units uh, were so successful in recruiting and so successful on the battlefield is uh, because they were, you know, from close knit towns together, they had grown up with each other. But it's also the same reason that they suffered so heavily during the war. And when you look at memory uh, post war, it's one of those things that these units, you know, if they were battered in the field, if they lost large numbers of men, you know, when they come back home, those are families that they're going to see every day, and it's going to remind them of the losses they've taken. Um, it's going to you know, strengthen the bond in those veterans organizations. And it's actually one of the things that revives the guard after the war is you have all these people that are super excited about their military service, super proud about it. And they want to keep that unit going. Uh, for example, the 72nd Pennsylvania, when it's disbanded at the end of the war, many of the members of that, that uh, you know, fire zouaves from the Civil War, they're going to come back and they're going to start a zouave company in the city of Philadelphia in the 1860s and 70s. And that's gonna continue on to a unit that's still serving in those same neighborhoods today. And uh, you know, it's, 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 really, it's really part of you know, why you're so invested in the community because you'll have generations of individuals who have served with the same, same units, uh, you know, different generations of their family. Absolutely. Well, how can people learn more about you and what you do? And uh, go ahead and plug yourself. <laughs> um, well, you can check out uh, ARNG underscore leader underscore development on Facebook, and we post a lot about uh, military history in the Guard, and we, we share a lot of stories from all across the National Guard. You can also check out Leaders Recon on Facebook, which is where we post the same content. Uh, or my personal page is Pie Pants on Instagram, uh, which is an inside joke that is now going out to your audience. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I share a lot of individual stories from stuff I uncover and research that's maybe not quite ready for the uh, for the bigger pages. So 
um, yeah, that's, that's uh, where you can get most of the, the information that I put out on social media. Awesome. Really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Hope we can do this again. Yeah, of course. Thank right. you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening while you enjoyed a frosty during this heat wave, a summer road trip, charging Yankee fortifications at Franklin with Claiborne, fighting with Club Musket in the cornfield at Antietam, or whenever you listen to podcasts. Please like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, subscribe on YouTube, and tune in next time for our next episode.